from Nehemiah 8. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the seventh day, or on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the teacher of the law stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right and on his left stood the Levites. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. This is the word of the Lord. What is great to see you this morning. I'm so glad that you are with us. We are right about in the middle of our summer teaching series on what it means to be a worshiping church. We've been looking at the shape of liturgy, this traditional order of service that's been used for almost 2,000 years, to see how, how worship, the singing, the, the prayers, and the teaching of God's Word shape us as individuals and as a community. And today we're looking at at the words of God, how the, the word of God in a church service and in all areas of your life shape and form you as a person. And it made me think about just words in general. Words in general, we live in a, a world that is just full of words. We live in a cultural moment where it seems like the dominant words are, are loud and empty words. Many, many words like everywhere we look. I mean, you can think about, uh, you know, if you won't follow sports at all, we're in the era of, of hot takes. There's no real thoughtfulness. Everything is just a hot take. So the more controversial it is, the more it gets people to argue, the better. Uh, we live in a world of podcasts where absolutely anybody can have a podcast. And so now we have sort of self-described gurus that tell us how to live. And then there's social media, which I don't know if it directly has contributed to the to the complete collapse of humanity, or, or maybe it just sped it up, but that's where we're at. Social media fills our lives with words. I mean, even as you go around town, there are brand names everywhere you look. There are names on buildings and on clothes.
clothing. There's billboards when we're driving at work. The, the companies we work at put up their, their values and slogans and inspirational posters, whether it's like, you know, a baby panda hanging from a tree that says, hang in there. You're like, I guess I'll keep working here one more day. Just surrounded by words and words and words. And, and the loud and empty and many words are drowning out the important, the soft, the thoughtful words. I read this week that uh, despite all the words that are surrounding us in our lives, the average 20 to 45-year-old reads about seven minutes a day of like actual reading. I mean, like books or articles or something with a little bit of substance to it, not just work emails, seven minutes a day. And Proverbs 10 says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. And Ecclesiastes 10 says, a fool multiplies words. So we're, we're just surrounded by words, and yet words have almost totally lost their meaning. I'm afraid it's not always better in the American church where it feels like the loudest voices are the ones that get the most attention, whereas the people who are most mature and most thoughtful often are not given a voice at all. And it made me think, too, about, about Bible reading in the church. Now, there's, there's no condemnation, there's no guilt if you're struggling to make time for Bible reading, but I think we would all agree that Bible reading and our spiritual vibrancy go together in some sense. And so I was looking back on some stats, and over the years, a, a sort of steady 15% of church-going believers say that they read their Bibles daily. So over the last however many years or decades, about 15% each year is saying that they read their Bible daily. And this is church-going uh, Bible-believing Christians. And I've had so many people tell me over the years, you know, I, I would read my Bible more, but I'm, I'm just so busy. I understand that other people can, but I... I am just so busy I can't make time for it. And it would make me think, like, if only there could be some kind of, like, world pandemic that would slow everything down and push them into their houses in isolation with their Bibles for, like, 12 months, wouldn't that be great? And there was a new study that came out by the Barnett Group just in the last couple months that actually asked the question, were people reading their Bibles more or less during COVID? The answer is less. In fact, it was the single biggest drop in Bible reading ever recorded in a single year. It dropped to about 8.5%. And so there are probably a number of different factors for that, but it's, it's not merely a lack of time that makes us struggle with Bible reading. And so here at the beginning, I want us to sort of pause and think about words in this way. What are the words that we are consuming? Think about your, your word diet, whether it's work emails or social media or TV or even music. What are the, the words that you're consuming on an ongoing basis and how are they forming and, and shaping you? We'll get a little bit later in the message to how words form and shape us exactly how they do. But for now, just think about the words that we're consuming and what that means for us. We'll look at three things today. Why we need God's word how it changes us, and then how to listen to its teaching. So why we need the words of God, how it changes us, and then how to listen to it. So first, why we need it. And before we get too far into our topic, you notice our scripture reading this morning came from Nehemiah 8. It's actually one of my favorite chapters. It's this great revival text in the Old Testament where there was a, a revival of Israel around the word of God. 
But to give you a little bit of context as to what was happening here, I want to give you some reminders about the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. These are two different books in the Old Testament, but they're really telling one story of how Israel found themselves being overtaken and taken away to Babylon into exile about 600 years before Jesus was born. Now, Babylon was then overthrown by uh, Persia, and so they were in exile underneath Persia, but Persia had so many nations under their control, they let all of the nations go back to where they were from. And so the Persian Empire kind of had their control and their rule over all their people, but they let them go back home and they controlled at a distance. What this means is that the Israelites finally got to return to Jerusalem. The first thing they did when they got back to Jerusalem was they rebuilt the temple. The the beautiful temple that Solomon had built, that David had planned, had been torn down when Babylon attacked them. And so they took 20 years to rebuild a temple that was far smaller than the one that came before, but finally they had a temple. And so you have people that are in Israel, people that are in uh, all over the Persian Empire, but, but Nehemiah, who becomes the central figure in these, in these stories, he is a, a, a servant to the king of Persia. So he is in the Persian Empire, he has been, been grown up, he has spent all of his time in this far off place, but when he hears the, the condition of, of Jerusalem, he's grieved. He hears that the walls have still not been rebuilt around the city, which means that it's susceptible to attack at any given moment. And the people there are, are hungry, They're, they don't have the resources they need to rebuild society. And so Nehemiah pours out his heart to God in Nehemiah 1, and he confesses sin on behalf of Israel, that God, we have not followed your word, we have not acted within our calling as your people, we have followed the ways of the world, and now we are stuck in vulnerable. And so Nehemiah goes, and he takes 52 days to gather all of Israel and actually rebuild the entire wall around the city. It's this incredible act of faithfulness, and, and they have all kinds of people. I mean, there's like several chapters just about distant nations that came to mock them and, and like threaten them as they're building. It's like the original haters gonna hate. It was just constant over 52 days. But finally, the wall is built. They have the temple. People are returning to Jerusalem, and for the first time in more than 100 years, Israel gathers in Jerusalem at the temple. But it's not just for a party. But you see it in our, our text, Nehemiah 8. They build a platform. The priest Ezra gets up with the book of the law, which is the first five books of the Bible, and he begins to read. It says in verse 3, Ezra read aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and all who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. And that sounds a little bit like a modern church gathering where we, where we gather in, in, in expectation and anticipation that God might speak to us through his word. We've come to worship together. Now, they, you know, the text says this was at least a six-hour gathering. It's probably all day long. And, and at least in, in the NIV, there's no mention of coffee, like no mention of children's ministry. Might be, you know, maybe the NLT, I don't know. But for an entire day, they, they hear God's word being read to them, most of them for the first time in their entire lives. It says, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. All the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. 
Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. In verse 9 it says, all the people were weeping as they listened to the words of the law. So this is a powerful moment for God's people. They weren't just hearing the, the, the laws of the Old Testament, they were hearing the stories of God's unbelievable faithfulness to their ancestors. They would have seen in Genesis how Abraham received a, a calling from the Lord and a promise that he would become a father to many nations and how God gave them a child when they were about 100 years old. They would have heard God's faithfulness to Joseph and his brothers. Even though Joseph had been sold into Egypt, God still was faithful in saving Israel from the famine. They would have read Exodus out loud and seen see that when they were in Egypt as slaves, God released them from Pharaoh through the sea out into the wilderness in safety. And they would have heard the laws of God, this, this new pattern for life and flourishing in the world. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Worship him alone. Enjoy a Sabbath. Honor your parents. I mean, it would have totally changed the way they understood who they were and why they were on earth. And they were pierced by the wind. And they wept. Now, what happens next is surprising. It says in verse 9, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the Levites who were there said, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to the Lord. Don't grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. It says, The Levites called all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. It says, All people went away to eat and drink and to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. It is good and right to be grieved by our sin, to be humbled by it. And Israel was right to recognize that they had not been keeping the law. They were barely even aware of the law. They were not acting as God's people in any way in all these years of exile as they were living out far from God's place. And as they came under the, the, the piercing conviction of God's word, they were right to humble their hearts and to weep. And yet Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites, they're, they're so dialed into God's presence that in, in the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I love, it has a chapter on this, it says that Ezra closed the book and announced that they were going to have a party. I mean, it's kind of this wild turn that when you think, you know, this this day is holy to the Lord. We expect it to be followed by like sackcloth and ashes, but instead it's followed by party. But it's marvelous that they are celebrating, not because they faithfully kept God's word, but that God has been faithful to them in a time when they had not kept any of God's laws. Like not a single one of God's laws had they kept in just like a moment of contrition and repentance. And God calls for a feast. As we've been saying throughout this series, God is seeking true worshipers. He's inviting people to himself. He wants our worship because it's the best thing for us. And after 100 years of Israel showing no worship to the true and living God, he finally gets them back, and he simply wants to celebrate with them. It says they celebrated with great joy because now they understood the words that have been made known to them. 
They understood who they were, what they had been created for. They understood the laws and the context of God's salvation of them in the first place, that, that it wasn't condition, conditional on them keeping the laws, but rather God gives them a new way to live after he has saved and redeemed them. It's a beautiful expression of the mercy of God. So now we need the Word of God. It forms us, it shapes us, it teaches us, it protects us, it moves us, it centers us, it heals us. And so the next thing is how that actually happens. How does the Word change us? Now this whole narrative of Ezra and Nehemiah demonstrates what Psalm 19 says in the form of poetry and song. Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. They are more precious than gold, and in keeping them there is great reward. And so I ask, is this how we approach Scripture? I mean, and this is the first five books of the Old Testament. Is this how we approach God's Word, that it is refreshing and reviving, that it's perfect and good, that it's a light to our path? Is this how I approach it? And what we're seeing, I, I hope you can see, is, is that there's a connection between the Word and between our response of worship. We see this in Nehemiah 8, when the people hear the words, they are emotionally affected by it. They grieve, which is appropriate, and they celebrate, which is appropriate. In Psalm 19, we see words like refreshing, precious, radiant, and perfect being used to describe the Bible. Isn't that incredible that these are the, the emotionful and worshiping words that are used to describe God's word? The very first sentence in all of the Psalms is, Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on it day and night. So much of our experience of reading God's Word is, it depends on our approach to it, our, our sensitivity to the Spirit, our, our expectation and, and sense of anticipation as we come to the Scriptures. Do we want to learn from God? Do we want to submit to His good law? Are we expecting to see something beautiful in His law? And it makes me think of Jesus' own teaching. In just my own personal study, I've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, and I love how in Mark 1, there's this incredible phrase. It says, the people were amazed at Jesus' teaching because He taught them as one who had authority not as their teachers of the law. So the Israelites in, in the first century, this is you know hundreds of years after Ezra and Nehemiah, they're still in the city, they're still going to the temple, there is worship, you know, there's there's the practices, they've had the laws carefully explained to them, you know, they memorized chunks of the Old Testament at like Jerusalem Middle School. So they have all of the words and all of the teachings for hundreds of years. And yet still they said, no one has ever spoken with authority like this. We've had the words of God, but now here is one who speaks, not like religious leaders, but he speaks as one sent from God. He speaks with authority. Or I think about John chapter 7. Jesus is right in the middle of his teaching ministry. 
and the religious leaders are, are wanting to arrest him and, and put him on trial. And it seems like they're wanting to just intimidate him. So one day when Jesus is out teaching, the chief priests and the Pharisees, it says they sent two of their temple guards to arrest Jesus while he was teaching. Now I imagine, this is what I would do if I was one of the religious leaders, I imagine they picked the two biggest, baddest dudes that they could find. Like whatever the first century equivalent of like The Rock and Vin Diesel was, like that's, these guys are tatted up, they're like, they've got biceps coming out of their necks, they find the biggest, most intimidating dudes to arrest Jesus in a very public and humiliating way. And so the, the chief priests send these guys out in the morning and, and they're waiting for them to come back with Jesus. And then they wait some more. And then they wait all day. And at the very end of the day, the text says this, verse 45, finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? The guards replied, no one ever spoke the way this man does. They went and they spent the entire day under the teaching of Jesus and they either forgot to arrest him or, or just came to the conclusion, no, we're going to roll with this guy instead. And they come back to the chief priests, their, their employers, and they said, I know we're not supposed to like this guy, but you might want to check him out. No one has ever spoken like this man. There is something going on here that's not merely human and we are not going to go and do your busy work for you. It's such a beautiful picture of the way that Jesus' teachings, whether in the written word or spoken from his mouth, affects us and changes our whole perspective. Now, as I said, there are several different ways that, that words work on our hearts. All throughout life, we have a, a sort of pattern of, of what I call deformation going on in our hearts. I actually have a slide here, if you don't mind putting that up for us. It's another one of the fancy ones. <laughs> but as you can see, at the top, false narratives. These are things that are, are spoken over us, spoken to us throughout our lives. You can imagine them as, as the things that you heard throughout your childhood and in grade school. Maybe they're things that you hear even now. That you're not good enough, that you're not trying hard enough, that you're not beloved. And what that leads us to in the bottom right is a sort of self-defensiveness. We justify ourselves, we defend ourselves, we have to. And then what comes out of us is, is lying and threats and this, this just awful speech because that's what's been spoken over us for so long. And then the cycle begins all over again. And so this is a pattern of deformation that most of us grow up with. These are the things that are, are spoken into our minds that we embody and then come out of us as well. But now next is a pattern of spiritual formation. Instead of false narratives being spoken over us, the word of God is spoken over us and spoken to us. God's faithfulness, God's love, God's mercy is spoken over us and it produces a real inner change in our hearts. It produces humility in us. Through confession and repentance by the power of the Spirit, we internalize God's Word. And what comes out of us in the bottom left is the fruit of the Spirit. We demonstrate love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It, it just comes out of us because that is what the Spirit is doing in us through His Word. 
As you can begin to think, what are some of the things that have been spoken over me, maybe from an early age, maybe when I'm at work, maybe from my family now? Maybe if you go back a slide again to look at the false narratives, imagine having spoken over you consistently, you are not doing enough. You know, things were better before you were here. You know, maybe we'll give this project to somebody else who has a little bit of competency. These words sink down into our hearts. But then go back to the next one. What if instead you heard every single day, you are my beloved. You are my daughter. You are my son. And you, I am well pleased because I see Christ in you. Not because you have goodness of your own or you've kept all of the laws, but because you belong to me. You are mine. I lost you, and it cost me everything to come and find you, but now I have you back. How would it, how would it change the way you live if these are the words that were spoken over you, read into your heart every single day? We need the Word of God. We need it to change us. So here's the last thing especially in terms of our church gatherings, how do we receive its teaching? How do we as, as pastors and leaders want, uh, want to think about our sermons? You know, it's kind of odd. This is like a, a sermon about sermons to a certain degree. But I want to give you three things to receive God's word in its teaching. The first thing is attention to manage. And this is the ordinary and extraordinary tension that we talked about a few weeks ago. Like on one level, preaching is one of the most ordinary things we do in the church. You know, we have five of us that participate in, in the teaching of the Word here, and whenever one of us is teaching, we take about 15 to 20 hours that week to, to study, to read, to, to ask questions, to interact with each other. And we try to bring the, the best, most clearest message that we can bring on this Sunday, and, and we do it through microphones, and you sit in chairs, and we stand up here, there's an ordinary human element going on. And yet at the same time, there's something extraordinary happening. That God speaks through his word. Whether it's through sermons, whether it's through a, a friend giving you a, an encouraging message from the word at just the right moment. Whether it's through the singing or prayers that we use. They shape us, they form us. And so you can think about it, if you come here for, for 40 or 50 Sundays in a year, that's 40 or 50 sermons that you are hearing God's love for you, God's faithfulness to you, how God is leading you and inviting you to himself. Over five years, that's 200 or 250 messages of his grace towards you that shapes you, informs you, and heals you. And so that's the tension to manage. The second thing is our, our sort of model of preaching, which is what we call preaching to the heart. You know, there are several different models of preaching, just like there are different models of teaching and education and all the different things. And so you're probably familiar with some of these. The, there's the idea of inspiration, that the main goal of the sermon is inspiration. And so somebody teaches the Bible in a way that's fresh and exciting and encouraging, and it, and it kind of you know, hits you in all the right places. There's also the model of practical application, which is, you know, three steps to a great marriage or, or four ways to manage your stress. There's the expository model, which is sort of teaching the text line by line, book by book, and, and any application that people has to come directly from the text. 
There's what's called a Christ-centered model of preaching where we do the line-by-line thing, but everything points to the cross and resurrection. And that's essentially what we hold to as a church, but we call it preaching to the heart. It's a, a phrase from Pastor Tim Keller because it's a blend of Christ-centered preaching with renewal and Holy Spirit soul care dynamics. And so our, our model of preaching is sort of Keller plus a, an extra shot of the Holy Spirit. Like we want to see Christ in every single passage, and we also want to see your hearts renovated by every single sermon. And so our goal as, as preachers and teachers here is helping you form spiritually through sermons, through worship, through prayer, through community, through counseling, through training, through everything. And everything, every decision we make about preaching, what to preach, how long to preach, it's all run through this goal of spiritual formation on a heart level. Well, that's our, our model for preaching. And here's the third and final thing. It's a, a word of encouragement. And it's to receive the word with gladness. You know, it is so easy to, to critique the, the human element of preaching. And I know this because I'm absolutely the worst at it. Remember, it's only books on preaching. I took classes at the master's level and now the doctoral level on preaching. I am an absolute expert at critiquing other people's sermons. Not at actually preaching, but just critiquing other people. Like, no, I wouldn't do it that way. That was not the right transition. And so I really have to just shut that side down in my brain. When I'm listening to the other folks preach here, when there's teaching in small group, when I'm listening to sermons online, I need to, to silence that kind of, you know, critiquing mindset and say, Lord, what do you have for me in your word today? What do you want to say to me? What do I need to hear from your word? And regardless of whether the teaching is average or extraordinary, it is God's word. And Lord, what do you have for me? And so maybe this is helpful for you as well, probably not because you critique preaching to the degree that I do, but you might find yourself uh, just thinking of the ordinary and the human side of preaching more than its extraordinary side. I mean, even the worst sermons in a, in a human or technical sense can still be delightfully encouraging if you're hungry for God's word. You know, there's an old phrase that a mark of spiritual maturity is being easily edified and not easily offended. And this is because there's, there's a line in Ephesians 2 where Paul says, Christ came and he preached to those of you who are far off and those of you who are near. And he preached peace. So Christ came and he preached peace to those who are in Ephesus. And he's talking about both Gentiles and Jews with the far off or the close. But if you stop and think about that, you realize Jesus never actually went to Ephesus. Like, he never left Israel. And so how could it be that Christ went and he preached in Ephesus? Well, what Paul is saying is that when the missionaries came, when the church planters, when the pastors came and they preached, it was actually Christ preaching. So maybe they went home that afternoon and they, they forgot all the words of the preacher. Those, those floated from their memories, but it was the words of Jesus that sank into their hearts, that changed them, that, that converted them, that grew them up in the faith. Paul says, Christ came. Christ preached to you. Now this isn't just a, a nice way of putting it or a quaint phrase from Paul, but John 1 shows us how this is actually true. 
Because John says of Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And through him all things were made, and in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And in verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's because the Word of God, it's not just written words, it is literally a person. It is the Son of God himself. So that when the scriptures are, are read and taught, it's actually the voice of God. It's, it's the voice of Jesus speaking. On earth, in his earthly ministry, Jesus was everything that God wanted to say to his people. He embodied the love and the faithfulness and the generosity and the mercy of God. Jesus was everything God wanted to say in a person. Now wrapping up, many of you know that God has been sort of tuning my heart to prayer and worship these last few years. Worship and prayer, prayer and worship. For me personally and then for us as a church, we want to cultivate a people of prayer and worship. And this is only possible if God has spoken. We can only respond in worship if God has first spoken to us. We can only pray to God if he has first called us to himself through his word, through his written word. Only then, and only then can we understand what prayer is through his word. Worship and prayer is impossible if God hasn't spoken. And yet he has. He has given us his word, this, this good and perfect and, and refreshing word that we might meditate on it day and night, learn to love it, and, and let it sink deep into our hearts to change us from within. It's why I want us to be a, a, a tight-knit, hospitable community where we are oriented around both the presence of God and the word of God, worshiping in spirit and in truth. Because Jesus is full of truth and grace. And so I can imagine myself retiring from Trinity at, at retirement age, which for a pastor is like 90 or 95, <laughs> and having a conversation with one of you saying, what did, what did Trinity mean to you over the last you know, six decades? And you say, well, I learned to love the Word. I learned how to pray. I learned how to sing. And then, and then that's what I did for my life. I, listen to the word, I prayed, and I sang. In that moment, I'm, I'm so happy and I can relax and I can, you know, tell Elon Musk, just shoot me off into space because I can die now. It's perfect. Our heart as leaders for you is that we might love and cling to the word of God and let us move towards worship and prayer at all times. God is seeking worshipers in spirit and in truth, and he's calling to us through his word.